This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Hey! Takes me out to the ball game. Takes me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. Cause it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Brilliant and boyishly charming Blue Jay Central host Jamie Campbell built his career on hard work, passion for the game, and an innate ability to connect with both the audience and the athletes. His approach is refreshing, clever, analytical, friendly, and inclusive. What do I mean by that? Well, Jamie, in his own unique way, invites fans to fasten their seatbelts and join him for the ride each and every game. But life recently threw Jamie Campbell a curveball. He was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. He joins us now on the feed to talk about his cancer journey so far and why he feels it's important to give back. Jamie Campbell, welcome to the feed. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Oh, it's nice to speak with you, Anne. Mm -hmm. So those words, you've got cancer, when they were said to you by the medical professionals, what did you think? What did you feel? Well, um, if I could be so transparent, I got a call from my family doctor on January 11th, 2021. Um, And when I saw her name come up on my phone, I was expecting an entirely different message because a few days earlier, I'd actually gone in for an STD test, which draws blood, as you may or may not know. And um, when I noticed that she was calling, I was expecting an entirely different message from her. Um, So when she explained to me that it appeared that I might have uh, CLL or chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Um, it was actually a bit of a shock because it wasn't the phone call I was expecting. And so she asked me at that moment to, uh, to go to a nearby emergency just to have a second blood test done and, and confirm what her diagnosis may be. And that's when, you know, my life changed and I won't say it changed negatively, Um, but it certainly changed at that moment. And Jamie, who did you turn to for support initially? Because that's a shocking diagnosis and, and as you said, totally unexpected. Yeah, you know, um, I have two children, both teenagers, and um, they're the first two people I thought of initially uh, because you, you, you know, you you sort of look around and, and suddenly try and fortify those around you and, and find moments of strength, uh, so that they don't have to worry. And, and the first thing I did after I got back from the emergency room was to get them together with their mother and explain to them what this was and try to reassure them. Although I did not know at the time that their father wasn't going to die. (laughs) So, um, and that, that was my greatest worry. I, I, as a father of two boys, my, my, my most um, um, uh, vivid memory was thinking to myself, okay, I never planned on exiting their lives and leaving them fatherless. So, you know, how do I work around this? You know, how do I keep myself alive? How do I survive this diagnosis? Um, and, And I relayed to them that I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't exactly sure that was true at that moment, but, uh, this is what I reinforced with them. And luckily, you know, the treatment for CLL is so good that uh, I have every intention of living well into my 80s. There's no cure for CLL. There is treatment. There is mm-hmm. extension of, of good health, but it comes back. How does that impact your forward-looking view of life? Um, that's a great question. So when I was diagnosed, I did not require treatment because one of the aspects of CLL is that, um, you know, it's essentially a condition where your blood's a little wonky. Um, but at the moment that I was diagnosed, it did not require any treatment. It got to a point where I would need treatment and I was told this and they could actually predict 
uh, in my case, about a year to a year and a half before um, my white blood cells would require uh, some form of treatment. And so I actually went an entire year plus a few months without needing any kind of treatment at all. Now, that said, what I did do is I, I treated myself. Um, I, I changed my diets. Um, I, I, you know, continued to work out as a then 54-year-old man and work out vigorously. So I took the advice of, of people who said, you know, you've got to make your body stronger to be able to fight this. And then... Uh, in March of 2022, I noticed my lymph nodes were starting to protrude through my armpits and through my neck. I noticed I was feeling a little more fatigued in time, and that was my signal to go in um, and let them know that it looked like it was it was you know progressing to a point where I required treatment. And it was very clear when I did go in by the blood test that treatment was absolutely necessary. So. People who get diagnosed with CLL don't necessarily need to be treated right away. And in fact, you can live years, years without ever needing treatment. Uh, in my case, mine progressed so quickly, I did need it. Now, it will come back. I'm on a wonderful treatment called Brukinza right now. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a treatment known as Xanabrutinib, and it was just approved by Health Canada. And it's, it's an incredible treatment, but it will only last about five to seven years if everything goes well. And, you know, at some point in the future, all of those uh, symptoms, the fatigue, the tiredness, uh, the high fever, the, the um, you know, expanding lymph nodes, that stuff will all come back and I'll be ready for it because I know it's going to happen. Um, and at that time, there'll be other treatments available to me. Well, and particularly with the strides that are being made in, in medical science and research at this point. So did your relationship with your sons change as a result of the diagnosis and, and also the sort of the reality of the treatment as well? Uh, no, my relationship didn't change much. What it did is it got better. Hmm. Um, and, and to explain that, I had a really great relationship with my own father and you know, by the time he died in 2016, um, the mourning period wasn't quite as, uh, as bad as I anticipated because he and I had maximized our time together over 49 years of my life. Um, and so when I had children of my own, I set out to ensure that the relationship I had with them was as fulfilled as possible. So um, by the time I got my diagnosis, I was already in lockstep with my kids um, and their lives. Um, I try never to waste time and tried, you know, to, to ensure that was the case long before my diagnosis. And now I've even stepped it up a little bit when, you know, we decide we want to do something, we do it. Yeah. We don't mess around. We go, we, uh, we, we took a week off school this past November and jetted off to Europe for 10 days just to, just to go, um, I rekindled an old family tradition of going to the Indy 500, which we did at the end of May, and we skipped out of school to do that as well. So um, I think what cancer's done for me, Anne, is that I've just I've stepped it up a little bit in maximizing the time I have with my own children. Because you know, as you may know, they 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 um, they get to a point in their life where they don't want to be with you anymore. They've got other things to do. They go off and they chase their dreams, and uh, and they won't be around in a couple of years, so I've got to take advantage of this now. But I promise you, they do come back. They circle back. When, they, when they're in their late 20s or early 30s, I promise you, they'll be back. <laughs> I'm keeping the rooms clean for that very reason. <laughs> Absolutely. And the beds made and so on and so forth. Uh, you went public with this. You shared this on Twitter. Why did you do that, and what was the response? Uh, there were two reasons. One, the funny thing about being a baseball broadcaster is... Um, it's not like working on, say, Hockey Night in Canada where you're there every Saturday night. This is an everyday thing from April until the end of September and hopefully into October. Yeah. <laughs> and I have found in the, in the course of my time doing Blue Jays broadcast that if I so much as took a weekend off, there would be people on social media wondering where the heck I'd gone. <laughs> Because you almost become like a family member uh, in some ways because every, you know, every night there you are getting setting, setting up a, a, a Blue Jays broadcast, whether it's at the Rogers Center or on the road. So when you go missing, people wonder why. And I knew 
that there was a potential for me to just suddenly not be able to to be there for for our audience and i just thought it was important to let them know that um you know if if you don't see me there's a reason i'm either on vacation or i'm you know i'm being treated or my leukemia has progressed or whatever it might be but i just wanted people to know that there might be reasons for me to have to step away and two I realized when I got diagnosed at the age of 54, I didn't know anybody that had CLL, and I'd never really heard of it, to be honest with you. Um, and, and I'm sure there are men out there, and women, uh, you know, it mostly impacts men, but, but women can get CLL, that, that are probably going through something similar where they might be afraid, they might not know anybody that has a diagnosis like theirs, and I wanted to become um, somebody that they could recognize as, as someone who was living with CLL so that anybody that's going through this and being diagnosed with it for the first time could turn on their TVs and see a, a healthy, you know, middle-aged man who's living and to a degree thriving with it, right? So that would maybe alleviate the fears they might have. Um, and that was the primary reason for going public. And it, it's actually paid off because I've heard from many, many people who received diagnoses act- after I uh, revealed mine publicly, and they weren't as afraid uh, because they saw me there every night living healthily and, 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 you know, and thriving in my role and learning to live with cancer. So and I've kind of altered a term. People sometimes refer to them as cancer survivors, I like to call myself a cancer thriver. Yes. In other words, I'm living a, a robust life with it instead of suffering from it. And did it help? Did it kind of lift a bit of a burden from your shoulders to share with the, the, the broader audience, your fans, your audience, you know, and to hear what their stories oh, were? Did yes. it make you feel, oh, goodness, I'm yes. not alone? Yes, it did. And, and to be honest with you, Anne, at the time that I... Um, publicize it. And I think it was opening day, if I'm not mistaken. In fact, I, if I recall correctly, it was the first day because I had finally begun treatment a week prior to opening day. And I felt terrible, terrible, um, because the medication just had not yet taken effect. Um, and I just thought, man, I, I don't even know if I'm going to make it through opening weekend because I feel so awful. Um, but the medication I went on at that time, uh, had an almost immediate impact within a few weeks. And, and I was feeling a whole lot better within, you know, seven to 10 days. So I, I was actually worried that I'd go on the air on opening day, announce that I had leukemia and then not be there three days later yeah. because I was feeling so awful. But luckily that was not the case. You are known widely as someone who gives back and you're doing that again and you are interested in helping all of us learn how to support women's shelter and the women who need and the families their children who need the support of shelters why mm-hmm. you know it's 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 a very personal thing and and this might sound a little strange but my marriage ended in uh, 2016 and at the age of 49 i guess it was I became a single man again and, and had to go out into the world of, of being single and dating and all of that stuff. And, and you know, it's, it's quite, a, quite an experience at that age to, to get out there again. Things are a little different in the modern era with, uh, you know, online dating and that kind of thing. And I was shocked to, to find uh, that I was meeting women that were, were not treated very well by um, ex-husbands, ex-boyfriends. I heard a lot of stories that I found quite alarming, to be perfectly frank. And so <clears throat> when I, um, now luckily I have found, um, I have found a wonderful woman. I have successfully navigated that, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, that, that lifestyle and, <laughs> and, and that ordeal. And, and I have found someone that I, I absolutely adore and love. However, what I did learn is that there are just, there are a lot of women who just aren't treated that well um, by men. And it, it, and I, it, it kind of rocked me a little bit, to be honest. And so when I started putting um, some of the scorecards that I keep every night up for auction on Twitter, I started targeting 
women's shelters in uh, lesser populated places around the country. Uh, because my thinking is there may not be many resources for people who grow up or, or are in um, homes where abuse is common, uh, whether that's sexual or otherwise. And I just needed to support some of these places. And, and luckily, the response has been wonderful. We just, I just sold off um, um, some uh, scorecards from a recent series against the Yankees that generated $500 for uh, a women's shelter in, in Labrador, up in Labrador City. And, and that, you know, that money goes a long way. My research told me that, that about $10 can go so far in being able to house a woman and her children for, for a day, like 10 bucks, you know? And so, you know, imagine how far $500 can go for a place like that. So it's, it's really important to me. Wow. Jamie Campbell, host of Blue Jay Central on Sportsnet, the boy next door wearing the best looking suits. And you've got such a great attitude. And I wish you all the best in the future, you and your sons and everyone who adores you. And thanks a lot for taking the time to join us on the feed. Really, really appreciate it. My pleasure, Anne. It's an (laughs) honor speaking with you. This next story of inspiration from the young author of She Warrior. Here's Kevin Frankish. Surviving cancer is a victory. That's why there are so many books out there written by survivors chronicling their unique and incredible journeys. Speaking of unique and incredible journeys, I would like to introduce you now to the author of the book, She Warrior. The author is only 11 years old. Sienna Kleiner-Fisman was diagnosed with a rare cancer when she was only three years old, and she's written a book for kids and adults alike. Cece, as her friends call her, joins me right now. Hi, Cece. Hello. Is it okay if I call you Cece? Yeah. Ah, oh, wonderful. Um, so Cece, tell me about this book. Well, um, it's about my journey through cancer and all, and because usually cancer it isn't a very good thing, but my story looks at it from a child's view, which is in a, which is a very positive, which is very positive. So tell me more about tell me more about that because you're right cancer is is not a good thing but but you look at this as sort of having you've gone a, undergone a journey a, a trip Yeah um basically so I was first diagnosed but then I then we had to start treatment and then we had to go to Philadelphia, but we had so many adventures there. And we went on a food tour. We <laughs> stayed at lots of hotels. We crashed a wedding. You wait, whoa, 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 whoa! You crashed a wedding? What do you mean? <laughs> well, one day, me, and my mom, and my mom's friend Marla, who was coming to visit, we were in—I forgot where it was but some sort of square, and then I was popping bubbles, and a bridal party was taking pictures, and they invited me to join, and then I caught the bouquet. And then no! Do you know what, oh, whoa, 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 Cece, do you know what it means when you catch the bouquet? <laughs> oh, yeah. What does it mean? It means you're next to get married. <gasps> so, are, have you set a date yet? Okay, let's move on. Let's let's, let's move on. Cece, why did you write a book? Where did you get this idea? Because 11-year-olds don't generally write books about surviving cancer. Well, some 30-year-olds who have had cancer, they just look back and they think, that was terrible, I'm going to write a book about it. But... I looked back when I was 11 years old, and I said, that was terrible. I'm going to write a book about it. I have an important story that needs to be told, so I'm going to tell it. It could help so many people living with cancer. That's amazing. Your mom is, is beside you, isn't she? Yes. Can, can I speak to her for a moment? Okay. Hello? Now, this is this is um, Cece's mom, Galit, and, and, and Galit, where the heck does this kid get this positivity from? 
Well, you know, Cece has been quite a unique kid from uh, pretty much the day she was born. And um, I've just been along for the ride trying <laughs> to support her. <laughs> but she definitely sees the world uh, in a completely different way than most people um, with a lot of magic and beauty. And my job was to just foster who she is and to try, uh, I mean, <laughs> the backstory here is obviously having a three-year-old with cancer is not that much fun for anybody. And for a mother, it's a total uh, nightmare. Um, but for, you know, my job was to try and protect Cece and uh, look at look at the positive and see, sort of take each day. And when we had to go to Philadelphia because um, there was a type of radiation there, it's called proton radiation rather than photon radiation, which is a more precise radiation, uh, Cece's tumor was in her nose, so it was kind of near eloquent cortex of her brain, um, and the doctors wanted to protect her brain as much as possible, and the proton radiation uh, is more precise than photon radiation. So there are very few places in North America that uh, provide this type of radiation, and we were very lucky uh, that the doctors at SickKids advocated for Cece to uh, received this type of radiation, and we were supported to go to Philadelphia, and that's why we went there. And she went there for a period of of eight weeks. And um, <laughs> I, I previously uh, lived in Philadelphia. My son was born there. Um, I, I I started my career there, and so it was kind of a look back. And so we went we we went to Philadelphia with the you know the knowledge that every morning she was getting you know, uh, radiation to her brain and, and face, um, and she would have to be under general anesthesia. But in the afternoons, we would have some fun. And we sort of went on, on various different tours and had different people come to visit us. Uh, and you and crashed so weddings. We, it, well, she crashed <laughs> weddings. I mean, Cece is a pretty uh, charismatic young lady, so she um, she really catches the attention of people. You know, this little girl in a princess outfit um, running around the, uh, it was Washington Square in Philadelphia, and uh, and and she charmed everybody, including the groom. <laughs> so we we had to remind Cece that the groom was the bride. And uh, <laughs> um, what's your diagnosis now? Uh, I'm I'm so pleased to say that she is in. Well, she's not in remission. She is cured after five years of wow. treatment. If there's no recurrence, it's considered a cure. Oh. Um, so it's uh, it's truly a miracle, and and I consider ourselves incredibly lucky. Wow. Uh, we had expert medical care, but it was also an element of, of good fortune. Yeah, you're lucky in so many ways. Um, all right, thank you, Galit. Let me let me just say goodbye to Cece. Absolutely. Here she is. Hello. Hi, Cece. Well, Hello. I think your story, just from listening to the, these, these few minutes, is incredible. What would you say to someone out there, whether a child or uh, an adult, what would you say if, if right now they're fighting cancer? What would you tell them? Well, I'd say every day find the silver lining. Um, say you don't have to go to school or work. And then also hope that tomorrow is better than today. Ah, well, thank you for this time. I appreciate it greatly. Um, the book is called She Warrior. It's available now. Its author, Sienna Kleiner, uh, joined me uh, from her Toronto home. Thanks, Cece. You're welcome. Coming up on the feed, Home Sweet Rome, the committee is calling and the practical applications of AI. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. The head of a leading Canadian artificial intelligence company states the following. AI is a valuable tool and it's time to put aside the hysteria and stop fearing artificial intelligence. Sebastian Paré is the president and CEO of VIQ Solutions based in Toronto, an AI company that utilizes artificial intelligence for practical applications surrounding our everyday lives, policing, government services, insurance and journalism, just to name a few. He joins us now on the feed. Welcome, Sebastian. Great to have you on the show with us. Pleasure to be here today. 
So you've been quoted as saying, AI, embrace it, understand it, respect it, so as not to fear it. Where is the fear of AI coming from? Um, I believe the fear really overall comes from a lack of planning. I think this is nothing new. AI has been building up for several decades. It's just there's been a turning point, the same way the internet was at one point. Now it's really a found we're finding ourselves in a position if you saw it coming and you've been able to plan for it and deploy your capital and work with your employees to prepare them for this revolution, I think most companies are well positioned. I think a big part of the fear uh, has been on most organizations, most employers have not been planning accordingly. I also think that there's fear of the unknown and there's also fear that AI is more intelligent than human beings. Yeah, so there's obviously that aspect of it. I don't think we see it the same way. We see it as a major productivity powerhouse uh, that allows all our employees globally, uh, basically with the work that we do that touches thousands of lives every day, just to be more productive and then redefine a way a transcription, uh, a document uh, is being done today using technology. So it's really about redefining the role and evolving towards really embracing what we can gain in terms of productivity, which allows a lot of our employees to do a lot more and with higher level of interest in the skills and the tasks that they're performing every day. Is it fair to ask you, Sebastian, exactly the definition of artificial intelligence? Yeah, for us, you know, obviously, it's, it's really about predictions and learnings. It's the anticipation of what's coming next through the learnings. So you need training data uh, in order to make sure you, you model and you train data. Uh, you need input data to increase the prediction and the ability to anticipate. And you need a lot of feedback data, both from the machine but also from the human experts, uh, to improve prediction accuracy. That's fundamentally what it is. But you reach a point where prediction becomes deeper and richer. And that's what we've seen in the last several months now that people are waking up to now, oh my God, accuracy is much better. But at the same time, this is where the value of judgment comes in. And this is where the human interaction comes in, which is where the training comes in. So for us, we saw it coming. It's been uh, many, many years in the process. But and, you know, fundamentally, it's about prediction and learnings and the ability to actually incorporate into your workflow what we do every day. So the human being is still the one harnessing AI and, and, and guiding a AI, if you will. 100%. I mean, I think people will just realize we've all been contributing to where we are today. Whether or not you use the internet, which most of us do, whether or not you write, whether or not you speak using any mobile devices or anything like that, we've all been participants and actors in building up this great repository uh, that we've seen becoming open source in the last couple of months. So as far as that's concerned, it, it's truly a revolution. It's underway. And I think instead of focusing on all the elimination of jobs or anything like that, in the contrary, uh, for those of us who are willing to learn and plan for it, it, it's been a great productivity boost and the ability to redefine a lot of our jobs internally. Uh, also in terms of our contracts and what we do for our customers. In the introduction, I mentioned that you, your company, VIQ Solutions, has uh, been utilizing AI for practical applications, things like policing, insurance. I'm most interested in journalism. How is it applied to journalism? Well, I'll just give you an example. If I just don't mind reading something for your listeners, uh, I think that's going to bring it to bear. One hour, one hour of verbatim audio and video recording takes an average of a professional typist around 4.7 hours worth of work. That's the reality today. When we incorporate AI in our workflow, including for journalism, the average hour-long file takes now an average of three hours of work, which is nearly two hours less of working time. Our work obviously impacts thousands of people globally, whether or not it's journalism reporting on the news, whether or not it's an insurance adjuster dealing with the claims, whether or not it's a police officer that should be on the street, not writing notes back in the office, or even a judge in the court settings. So I think if you think about the scale, we're processing 20 million minutes of content every year. And with AI so far, we've shaved roughly half a million hours. That's about 20,000 work days worth of typing per year. It doesn't mean the human element has been taken out of the loop. In the contrary, but instead of spending three-quarters of their time writing a first draft, now they're working on editing a first draft. They're working on analyzing the content 
and we've opened up a whole new line of service with our customers in terms of mining the data on behalf of our customers. That's really what the power of AI is about, is really transforming that role and the ability to drive that productivity across the organization. So, but that all makes sense when you say this, but there also is that that deep-seated fear that you might be replaced by AI because AI is more efficient and time, uh, the, the consumption of time is less when it comes to productivity. That makes a human being kind of think, well, AI can do it, I can't, and so there goes my job. A very good point, and we've, we've, we've faced this all along. For us, it's been a five-year journey. We're now into the uh, final year of a five-year journey to drive our first iteration of AI. And we've been facing this in every region where we operate globally. It really comes down to there's nothing different from a spreadsheet, you know, basically 25 years ago where everybody was spending their time doing the math and making sure the basic numbers were right. Now most of us don't even bother with those numbers because we now we've reached a level of accuracy, but we've elevated what we're working on. And I think that's really what's happening is people need to get off in terms of it's all about the fear. We understand that, but it's about what are you going to do about it? Ignoring the problem is not going to make it go away. It's here to stay. And I think at this point, it's about leaning in and really embracing the new skills because what we've found in our industry is we're also attracting new talents, talents that never thought that transcriptionists and editors is something that they want to do. Now we're starting to attract a whole new level of generation of talents coming in because they want to participate and they understand that their skill set is actually going to be much higher if they've been able to demonstrate that they can work in collaboration with machine learning. Sebastian, can AI fall into the wrong hands? You know, we think about some world powers that are threatening, and can it be used for, for evil rather than for good? Well, I think, you know, you don't have to search much further than our cases. I mean, we're involved with the courts. We're involved with the lawyers. We're involved where it matters. Documentation does matter. And there's been a couple cases that I'm sure your listeners can relate to lately that, you know, false information or inaccurate information was provided because they went on a bot uh, and they went on a search engine. So the reality is I think what you're going to see as far as regulations and what we've been encouraging all along is really about the training and the data that goes in. Be very specific. How are you training your AI? What kind of quality data is inputted into the model? What does that mean? What's the quality check? And you're going to see a lot more disclosure moving forward, whether or not it's VIQ on behalf of, of our companies to our customers, whether or not it's other companies. There's going to be a lot more emphasis on disclosure. What are you doing about training your data? What kind of checks and balances can you put in a system to make sure that the data being used to train those AI models is as accurate as it can be? And obviously, this is, this is something that it's now widely dominating the media lately for reasons. What's next for AI, in your view? I think it's about the uh, industry specific. I think, you know, the world is waking up to chat GPD-4 and all of that, but this has been in the works for decades. It's all been happening at the high level. Now it's really going into what we call industry specific. And I think, you know, basically now that's where it's going to go next. Who can actually drive this productivity powerhouse and productivity boost in an industry that is ripe and ready for this transformation. And obviously, transcription is really well positioned. Nobody will argue that the way we do transcription today and we create verbatim documentation uh, is different from you know before speech to text and all of that. So I think for us, it's really clear. It's no longer big tech Fortune 500 driving AI. Now it's going really specific into industry. And really the open community, the open source community is a big factor. Now it's becoming democratized. It's available to all if you can harness and if you can actually go and, and plan for it. So from our perspective, it's really about the, uh, the industry-specific application. Sebastian Paré, President and CEO, VIQ Solutions. This was fascinating. Thank you so much for your time on the feed. Thank you for being here today, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. The city of Vaughan is looking to fill positions on three advisory committees with residents who are interested in giving back to their community. The application deadline is this coming Wednesday, June 14th. We get the details from Glenn Perkins.
And the advisory committees are age-friendly Vaughan, anti-hate diversity and inclusion, and transportation and infrastructure. I asked City Clerk Todd Coles, what's the responsibility of these committees? All the committees um, are are formed to provide guidance to the mayor and members of council, uh, helping make decisions and and provide input on, on policy and direction. Each advisory committee itself will have a specific mandate. Uh, For example, the age-friendly Vaughan Advisory Committee has a mandate to make recommendations that address older adult challenges and promote uh, promotion of healthy seniors in Vaughan. Um, They'll include making recommendations on Vaughan's older adult recreation strategy, the Vaughan Age-Friendly Community Action Plan, and and the different programs and services that make Vaughan a more age-friendly community a place where all the residents can be active and engage members of the society at at every stage of their lives. Who would be an ideal candidate to join one of the committees? Um, Each committee, because of the nature of them, are are looking for something a little bit different. So the first thing I would do, would I'd be encourage uh, the listeners, if they're interested in reviewing the different committees, is to visit our our website at vaughn.ca slash committees. Each committee has uh, terms of reference. It lets people know the type of people that are being, you know, sought for the committees. The age-friendly uh, committee, for example, is looking for citizen members who are part of the older adult population uh, or have some sort of insight or experience with the Vaughan older adult community. And there's even one spot on that committee that's uh, essentially reserved for a member representing an organization or service provider that serves older adults. And does the person have to live in Vaughan? Uh, not necessarily, uh, and part of that is to ensure that we get uh, a broad range of experiences to help make decisions and, and provide advice to council. So being a resident uh, is certainly very helpful. Our Transportation and Infrastructure Advisory Committee is looking for people who are a Go Transit user, for example, a post-secondary student, a cycling representative, or may even have an accessibility interest. So uh, not necessarily, but we are looking more so for real-world experience. And what would the time commitment be? Um, Each committee has its own schedule, but typically they meet once a month, uh, and typically they don't meet during July and August. So you're looking at around 10 meetings a year, um, and you'd want to include some time to review agendas and things like that. So it's not a terrible time commitment if you're interested in giving back to your community. What would you say are the benefits for someone who joins an advisory committee? Well, I, I think there's just the primary benefit is, is knowing that, that you're giving back. You're giving back to the city of Vaughan and, and the residents, that you're using your knowledge and your life experience to help the city make decisions that will, will better everybody's lives. And what is the application process? People who are interested in applying can uh, visit our, our website at vaughn.ca slash committees. Uh, on that page, they're going to find some uh, terms of reference and additional information about committees. And there will be a link to an application form. It's an online application form that they can complete uh, completely online. If uh, someone is in need of an alternative format, uh, then we ask that they email clerks at vaughn.ca and we'll work, uh, work with them to get them a, a format uh, for them that, uh, that they can use. And the deadline is fast approaching? It is. We've actually, uh, Glenn, we've actually extended the deadline now to ensure that uh, people have a good opportunity to uh, to consider applying and, and then going through the application process. So our, our deadline now is Wednesday, June 14th. Todd Coles, Vaughan City Clerk, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you, Glenn. If you are interested in joining one of these advisory committees, more information is available online at vaughan.ca slash committee. For The Feed, I'm Glenn Perkins. After the break, Black Girl Hockey Club Scholarship winners. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of The Feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Shaliza Backus is next with the star of Home Sweet Rome. I am always excited to showcase up-and-coming talent, and our next guest is no exception. Kensington Tallman began performing when she was just six years old and is now starring in the family channel comedy Home Sweet Rome, which has some pretty cool names connected to it. It's actually created by the same guy who brought you Hannah Montana and That's So Raven, My Millennials Know. Those were our shows back in the day, Michael Poirier's. Kensington joins me now to chat about her career so far. How are you? 
I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me. All right. You've, as I mentioned, have been performing since you were six years old. So what has that been like for you growing up in the spotlight, essentially? I started violin when I was six years old and I had a really bad stage fright and it kind of help me get outside of my shell a little bit. I grew up in New York City and so I would play on the streets of New York and I just started growing a love of performing from a really young age. And I think, you know, being surrounded by such culture and art in New York, I think that really influenced that as well. And when I moved to Los Angeles four years ago, it was just the perfect opportunity to start acting. And I started taking classes when I was 10 and I just, fell in love with the the art. I fell in love with acting and performing and singing. I, I just love it so much. I am continuing my love of music. I started playing the ukulele and the piano, and I just love performing so much. That's amazing. You are so multi-talented. So I am super excited for your future because you've got a really bright future ahead of you. So tell us about this show, Home Sweet Rome. It seems like it would be right up my alley, even though I'm old. <laughs> Home Sweet Rome is amazing. It's a musical-driven show about my character, Lucy, moving all the way from North America to Rome, Italy. And so she's trying to find the balance of this new life. She has a new stepmom now who happens to be an Italian pop star. So there is a lot of musical elements. There's 11 original songs. And it's really about Lucy's coming-of-age story and about her self-discovery. And she's trying to make new friends, but trying to stay connected with her old friends friends. And it's such a beautiful show. It has so much heart. Um, you'll laugh and cry in the same episode. And I think what's really unique about our show is that it takes place in Rome. And I don't think there's a show out there like this for kids. And, you know, you'll get to see the Colosseum and the Spanish Steps and all these incredible locations. And I think everybody is just going to absolutely love it. It's a show for the whole family that everyone can enjoy. I love that for you. And honestly, as soon as you mentioned Rome, the first thing that I thought, and I want to ask if you've ever seen the Lizzie McGuire movie. I have. That was the first movie <laughs> I watched after I booked it. I was like, I'm going to start watching Rome movies. I love Lizzie McGuire. I think it was such a cute movie. And, you know, Home Sweet Rome is so unique. It has um, definitely a different style because it's a single cam and it's, it's pretty grounded. And it's really about real kid emotions, like what Lucy is going through. She lost her mom. And so there's a big element of loss to it. And she's also trying to fit in. And she doesn't think that she really fits in and she's trying to be this person that she's not. And then she realizes at the end of the series that, you know, she's enough and just being herself is enough. And that's what people love about her. So yeah, I think, I think Home Sweet Rome is so unique and that's what I love about it. And I think that's a really important message to send to a lot of young kids that you are enough because in this day and age, it is so hard. It's harder than ever for kids to feel like they fit in, to feel like they can be themselves. So is that kind of what the main purpose of your character you feel is? Yes, that's definitely one of the main purposes. She is such an inspiration and I think she taught me so much about life and how to accept yourself as a person. And I think, like you said, in these day and ages, you know, with social media and TikTok and everything, it can be hard to try to aspire to be someone else. But Lucy really embraces herself and I think that is something that is going to encourage so many kids across the world. And I'm just so happy that, you know, they trusted me to play Lucy and to bring her story to life. And speaking of Lucy, are there any similarities you see between yourself and this character or any major differences? We are pretty much the same person. I'm not <laughs> even kidding. Like when I saw the breakdown, I'm like, oh, it films in Rome. Yes, please. And then I'm like, this character is like myself. I was so excited when I got the audition because it's literally parallel. You know, we both love animals. We both love music. We both love the Italian culture. We are both very, very clumsy. She's so optimistic and she's got so much heart. I've actually never played a character so similar to myself before. So in a way it was easier, but also more challenging in a way. So I thought it was really fun to play a character more similar to myself because I've usually played characters that are very, very different from myself. So this was kind of interesting to see what I could bring to Lucy and um, what I could incorporate into that. 
That's amazing. I'm glad that you share a lot of her qualities because she sounds like a great person and so do you. And you mentioned, of course, that this is set in Rome. I mean, the show is called Home Sweet Rome and it's not a green screen or anything like that. You did actually get to go to Italy and shoot this show. Yes, everything was filmed all in Italy, um, in Rome. I was there for four months. It was incredible. I lived in like the center of Rome. It's called, we lived like right around Piazza Navona, which is this beautiful piazza. And I fell in love with the Italian culture. Everyone is so welcoming there. What I love about them is when you try to speak Italian with them, they are so appreciative of it and they'll help you out. And the food is so good. They really take their time with everything, which I love because I feel like over here, you know, we're so fast paced trying to rush from one thing to the next. But the Italians have such an amazing way of life of really enjoying everything and embracing life, which was something I felt in love with and it was such an incredible experience and I just connected with our amazing cast and crew and I really hope that I get to do this all again. <laughs> Kensington Tallman, let me just say you are one to watch and we are so excited for this new show, Home Seat Roman is now airing on Family Channel and HBO Max and if our listeners want to find you, where can we go? Yes, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok and Twitter all at Hey Kensington. Amazing. Thank you so much and good luck. We hope to hear from you soon. Thank you so much for having me today. I had so much fun. Well, they are stars on the ice and now scholarship winners as well. Jim Lang with the highlights. What started out as a great idea now has become a hugely popular success in hockey all across North America. It's the Black Girl Hockey Club. And they now have their new announcement for their Summer 2023 Scholarship Awards. To talk more about it, thrilled to be talking to Taylor Green from Black Girl Hockey Club Communications and someone really with their finger on the pulse, everything going on with their organization. Taylor, how are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Before we even get started with some of the scholarships, I, I was so proud of you and Renee and everyone involved with the Black Girl Hockey Club, Game 2 Stanley Cup Final, and you get an in-game shout-out from the TNT NHL crew. That had to make you all feel very good. Yes, it was so excited. I knew it was going to happen beforehand, but I was still so excited and screamed at my TV when I saw it. So a big thank you to everyone at Warner Media and the whole BGHC team making it happen and our scholarship winners were so excited to be there so we're happy that we could make this possible for them it's amazing uh the black girl hockey club uh, part of this uh, great grant from bauer hockey of a hundred thousand dollars announcing the scholarships and i know you tweeted about it uh, aria manning of marquette michigan and She's in her goalie gear, and she looks like a goalie. And it's a great line from the, the Twitter department from Black Girl Hockey Club. She is eager to show that girls can be goalies and girls of color can succeed in hockey like everyone else. And that's that's the whole message here, isn't it, Taylor? Yeah, absolutely. Ari is one of our newest scholarship winners for the summer, and she actually just won a Michigan State championship with her team. So congrats to Aria. And, yeah, that is the whole point. One thing that you'll see throughout all of our scholarship winners and their families is just the importance of feeling seen and the importance of making a path for other girls and women like them. Now, this this is what stands out to me, Taylor, this year. And we've spoken before, but how many of your scholarship recipients are from the state of California, including a recipient of a grant courtesy of Bauer Hockey, part of the Anaheim Lady Ducks, Camille Patterson? Yeah, Camille is one of our uh, multiple award winners, so congrats to Camille and her family. Yeah, we're really proud of the legacy that we're building, and so we've had quite a few winners uh, from California, also including Lincoln Brown, who's really quite an amazing hockey player and is doing great things herself. So we're proud to have repeat winners, um, especially since so much of Black Girl Hockey Club is rooted in California. But we're equally excited that we've had winners um, from all over, and the geographic diversity is exciting as well. Uh, For instance, one of our new winners, China, she's from Louisville, Kentucky, and we've never had a winner from the state of Kentucky before. So we're really excited about that as well. And considering that the Stanley Cup final has two unconventional markets, we're excited that Black Girl Hockey Club has winners from unconventional markets too. 
And then Taylor, an athlete like China receiving a scholarship from Louisville, Kentucky, was it the Black Girl Hockey Club that got her into hockey, or was it something else or a bit of everything? Uh, actually, it was uh, technically the PHF having uh, a, a coach who played professional hockey and someone that she could see and model her game after. So I think that coupled with hearing about Black Girl Hockey Club has really helped and propelled China. So we're super proud of her. She's playing at an academy outside of Boston, and she's doing great things. So we're really excited about her and all of our winners this season. And by the way, the Black Girl Hockey Club, they are currently accepting applications for the fall season. The deadline to apply is Thursday, August 31st. Get all the information that you need. Go to their website so you can be part of it. I'm looking at all your recipients, and they're all at different age groups and different levels of hockey. And the thing that stands out to me, Taylor, it's just a matter of time to one of your scholarship recipients might be part of the U.S. national team or another country's national team. Yeah, one of our winners, uh, Noah Diop, she plays for the French national team. Uh, She's from Chicago, but she has French citizenship. So hearing updates from her about how she's playing against Italy and the U.K. and the strides that she's making across the pond is really excited. So we're really proud of her. Um, Another one of our winners is helping to build ice hockey in Kenya. So Black Girl Hockey Club is global, and we're really proud of all of our winners, uh, both in North America and beyond. I look at a a recipient like Kaya Moulton. Uh, Her resume is amazing out of Vermont. Recently won the Vermont High School D1 State Championship as an eighth grader. She excels with her high school hockey team, and she's playing AAA. This is an amazing athlete. Yeah, Kaya is amazing. Um, Another great goalie. So, yeah, she's wonderful, and she's someone who excels. Uh, both on the ice and in the classroom. So we're really excited to see where Kaya goes, and especially in a place like Vermont. I believe she's our only winner from Vermont. So we're really proud of her and proud that she's spreading the word about BGHC. The Black Girl Hockey Club has just grown so much over the last few years, and now these amazing scholarships. Taylor, for people listening, uh, what's the future hold for BGHC? Where, where are you headed, and what's some of your goals in the next couple of years? Yeah, sure. So we have BGHC Canada, uh, led by Isabel Cup champion Saroya Tinker. So, and BGHC Canada has their own series of scholarships uh, that they accept applicants on a rolling basis, and they are about $2,500 to $6,000 in amount. So if anyone's interested, they can go to blackrowhockeyclubca.org and look there. Um, as always, you can go to blackrowhockeyclub.org for everyone in the U.S., Um, And just a reminder that Black Girl Hockey Club is primarily run by volunteers. So this is certainly a labor of love. So in order to make these scholarships happen, uh, it's uh, primarily rooted and powered in donations. So if anyone's looking to donate or spread the word about our scholarship program, feel free to go to blackgirlhockeyclub.org. Taylor, thank you so much for you and your staff and what you do for growing the game of hockey and making the game a better place. And here's to more shout-outs during hockey broadcasts because you all have all earned it. Thank you so much, Jim, and thank you for your support in BGHC as well. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.